0: chapter 3 tonight. The Bible begins and ends in some ways with a very similar story. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are this incredibly beautiful picture of an artist creating on this amazing canvas of reality everything we know. The sun, the moon, and the stars, and by that I mean the known universe, which is incomprehensibly big, right? And then creating us and the world we live in, and He did it over and over through His Word, right? Right. And then we see in Revelation this great battle as the Creator comes back to retake His world and has this sort of... um, epic battle with the devil and will ultimately slay the demon the devil with the word of his mouth so the bible begins and ends with this incredible like hollywood cool stuff and the word of god's at the very center of it and that teaches us at least this sort of it shows why we've spent this week talking about the word but it also shows us That the Word of God is always sort of at the center of the battle of our lives. And as we've looked at the way that Christians historically thought about the Bible and the way the Bible thinks about itself, and even the way Jesus thinks about and uses the Bible, it sort of brings up the question, at least for those of us who are Christians and maybe those of you who are investigating Christianity, why is it so hard to believe the Bible? Why is it so unpopular to believe the Bible? So many of you go to schools where if you mention to professors that you believe the Bible, you're almost instantly mocked and dismissed. And why do you find it so hard in your own heart to embrace this, this word? And I, I understand you have legitimate questions. And, and look, I mean, I think I'd be, um, it would just be reckless of me not to say, a lot of the stories in the Bible are hard to know what to do with. I mean, is there a worldwide flood and what do you do with that, right? How do you sort of deal with that as a geology major or a scientist? Christians have sort of died on the hill of creation being seven literal days, right? 24-hour days, and now there's Christians building an ark in the Midwest and sort of arguing that that'll prove the Bible's true, and it seems to just make our professors angrier. Um, Christians have died on a lot of hills, so I, you know, I recognize that part of our own dilemma in thinking about Scripture is just even the way Christians have used it. But there's actually something deeper going on with this struggle around the Word, and that is, and this is my simple point tonight: you and I are formatted at this point to not believe the Bible. We are bent in a way that really works against our believing in and using Scripture. And and this is why I've brought us to Genesis, to talk about really the consequence of sin in our lives and how that impacts the way we think about Scripture. Just a brief story to sort of at least set the tone. When I lived in St. Louis, and went to Covenant Seminary. I I, I shopped at a grocery store called Schnook's. And there's sort of a big debate in St. Louis whether you're Schnooks or Dearborns or blah, 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 or blah. And like, it's, it's just like all Southern culture. It's just competitive crap, right? Um, if you want to understand the South, we're competitive. That's all we are, and we're nasty. Um, what turn in, what school did you go to, your football team, blah, 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 competitive, right? Um, so I went to Schnooks, and there was this period of about five visits in a row, and I don't remember the number, so I'm making the number up, but I got the same cart, cart 19. And the reason I knew it was the same cart is the front right wheel was broken and when you would let go of it, you know how when you're shopping and you're kind of in a rush, you sort of slide it forward and grab the green beans and you keep going or you push it around the corner? Is when you let go of cart 19, it just swerved dead right. Like just, I mean, hard. And so I actually did, I got the call sign, clean up in aisle seven. I knocked over. An actual green bean display, it was not, not gigantic, it was small, but 19 swerved. And <clears throat> this passage is sort of teaching that we're 19s, all of us. That we, that we move away from Scripture, and it's inherently a battle for us to stay engaged with the Scriptures. It would be sort of reckless of me not to point this out to us, to spend a whole week and not point out to you, that the battle about Scripture is primarily an internal battle. I'm actually going to, Before I even read, I'm going to do an application. Some of you here tonight are struggling to believe the Bible. It's a very fierce struggle. But the reason you're struggling to believe it is because of your own practices, not because of it. You know that if you come back to it, you've got to stop that. And you see that internally, it isn't the philosophical debate. It's your heart that's bent like 19 away from the Bible. So let me read for us Genesis 3, a famous story, and we'll go from there. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat? From any tree in the garden, the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eyes and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord said to the serpent, Because you've done this, curse to you above all the livestock. Now we're not going to look at all the curses today, so I'm going to skip down to verse 21. Curses the animals, curses the man, curses the woman, curses them all equally. And then verse 20 says, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and he clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us knowing good and evil. He must not be, he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. After he drove the mount out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God stands forever. Let me pray and ask God to teach us His Word. We pray, Lord Jesus, that You would come now and through the Holy Spirit and through the power that is inherent in Your Word, that You would teach us and You would speak to us. Uh, give us insight into our hearts, in the way that our hearts are scared of and reluctant to embrace Your Word, which is Your love, which is Your Son. And we pray this in His name. Amen. Uh, for those of you who have heard the story, it's often overused in RUF, forgive me, but it is the story of the drunk woman. So My wife and I are home one night, and we're, my wife's at the kitchen sink, and I'm on the couch, I'm watching Sports Center. She is perfecting the kitchen. The kitchen must be perfected before we all sleep restlessly all night. My youngest daughter is downstairs watching something. If we were good parents, we would know what she's watching. But we're great parents, so we don't know what she's watching. <laughs> and suddenly, <clears throat> in my backyard, I mean, way in my backyard, it, it's not... There's, a, there's an explosion that sounds like a car accident. I live in a normal neighborhood in Knoxville, and a road runs in front of my house, Cheshire. I have a neighbor, my driveway's between his house and my house. And a road, Delburn, Delburn comes down and meets Cheshire, sort of up up beyond my driveway, but there's no road. So as I hear this sound, my wife, I don't remember, I mean, We're kind of in shock. It's such a loud, powerful sound. We're in shock. I think Marissa probably screamed, not like loud, but like, what was that? Mary Simpson downstairs did scream. I jumped up basically from being asleep. We go charging outside. It's probably um, probably 10.05 at night on a Friday night. We'd been at the West High School football game back when West High was good at football. And what we see, is hard to describe, but we see a car that's totaled in our backyard. So here's what's happened. A woman has gone to a bar. She's had 11 drinks during the football game, during the time frame of the football game. The football game was irrelevant to her. She leaves the bar. She's drunk out of her mind, gets in her car in a Saturn SUV, and drives out of Twisted Sisters, the bar, Uh, which is no longer open because of this event, goes past the Hardys and into our neighborhood, comes up Wellington, turns right onto Delburn, and that's the point where she passed out. She passes out, she doesn't have on a seatbelt, she slides into the wheel well, and now she's accelerating through like 20, 30 miles an hour, and she's she's actually gonna go into my neighbor's bedroom. She's gonna go over the curve and drive in his bedroom and probably kill him while sleeping but in, in the kindness of God himself, or providence, or just the cosmic force, if that's what you believe in. She hit the curve and it turned her away from his house, between our houses. And now she's accelerating through 40 miles an hour. She catches the hill and destroys one of my knockout roses, which I'm still struggling to forgive her for. <laughs> Accelerates off the end of our driveway. And at this point, I do want to replay in heaven. She gets air about 21 feet. And in, again, in God's goodness, she hits an oak tree dead center. The reason that's a good thing, for two reasons that's a good thing. If she hits it at all, all center, she tumbles, she gets thrown out the window, it cuts her in half. Because she hits it about 54 miles an hour, never touching the brakes. And it also lets the car do the thing it was designed to do, which was destroy itself and blow up and my wife was braver than me when we got out there I panicked like any good man (laughs) kind of like Adam I'm standing there going go do something (laughs) waiting on you my wife went down there opened the door she fell out her head was cut ended up that she had broken hip She she was very fortunate to be alive um, her car was totaled. Her two front lights had gone about 30 yards out in her backyard. There was a really cool debris field where the tree, like, it was a CSI dream, right? Like, <laughs> the debris field and the engine had pushed up into her passenger seat and not into her seat. They cuffed her when the person got there. And I tell you that story um, because she ignored reality that night. You don't have 11 drinks and climb in a car and expect there to be a good outcome. There are no good outcomes in our culture when you drink and drive. Especially when you have 11 drinks at Twisted Sisters. What are you doing at Twisted Sisters? Tons of better bars to drink in Knoxville. That's another discussion. (laughs) (laughs) Whichever bar you choose, 11 drinks and driving is is going to create chaos. She ignored reality. Now I'm using this illustration to try to get your your thoughts about the Bible to to change a bit here tonight. You tend to think of the Bible as a rule book. A book that will morally transform you and there's no doubt that Christianity has a morally transforming power in it. But the Bible is not primarily a rule book. It's not even first, second or third intended to be a rule book. The Bible is a description of reality. And you ignore it to your death. See, she ignored reality and accept that NASCAR exists and we know how to crash cars and how to make them come apart and God made engineers with pockets and pens and slide rules who create these incredible cars that save your life. She'd be dead. She was still broken and mangled. And I say this because many of you sit in a life that is broken and mangled because the people in charge of your life, your parents, your guardians, and yourself, have ignored reality. You've ignored what's true, and your life is a wreck because of it. It, it. Don't stand up and admit it here, but you know it inside. And if you haven't experienced it fully, you're living it with some of your friends. And the Bible comes to us to convince us of this reality. That we need to see it. Not simply, or not only as this rule book that terrorizes us but it's a reality of life that it's inviting us to. And what I want you to see tonight is why by nature that is hard for us, and why that nature being bent, what that means, and then where we need to look in the end. So my first point here is that we by nature don't want to enter into God's reality. Now, the story, and let me do this because you're all smart, very smart folks. You're much smarter than me. You, you, you attend schools that think that this story is just an absolute mockery. And again, the story has sort of been stolen out of the Bible, and we've entered into a debate about seconds and minutes about this story. and And I'm very happy to talk about do you think these are 24-7 days or these day ages? And Christians who believed in Scripture believe very different things about that. That's not why this story was put here. This story was put here to introduce you to your grandparents. It says, he named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. This is not a story about your watch. This is a story about your family. I was walking... Down the sidewalk in Chester, South Carolina. If you don't know where Chester, South Carolina is, (laughs) okay, so y'all are abnormal. The rest of you are normal. (laughs) You're from there, yeah, yeah, yeah. And a guy comes up to me and says, You're the grandson of Harvey Newton Heckle. And I said, I am the grandson of Harvey Newton Heckle. And he said, You walk just like him because he's my granddad. These are your grandparents you have the same problem they have. This is a big deal. This is why I'm beating this deal to death. What is the deal with our grandparents? And what's your and my deal? Why is the Scriptures tough for us? Let's admit it, we hate authority. She didn't put the seat, you know what the seatbelt is? It's a way of living and it's an authority. The seatbelt is a restraint to life. It's an invitation to live. You know what road signs are? Joy unspeakable. In your mind's eyes, close your eyes and imagine that I can wave my hands like this and every road sign and line disappears on the interstates and roads of our country right now. Death reigns. We hate authority. In this room right here, we either hate Trump or we hate Obama, but it proves the point. You hate authority. You hate it in one form or the other, or you love it in one form or the other, but you hate it because your grandparents hated authority. See, they rejected God's word here. God said, you can eat any tree out here. I mean, they had the whole world. They could eat all the trees. Don't eat that tree right there. And this is what they went. Let's talk about that tree right there. I'm real interested in this tree. I'm not okay. I'm not okay. Sorry. Thank you, thank you. I'm not OK. Um. <laughs> OK. They uh, gather yoga. So they became obsessed through the work of the devil with this debate about whether God was good and whether His Word was trustworthy, right? That's what's going on. And at this moment, they're saying, we can't trust God, we can't trust His Word, we can't trust His authority. And this is inherent in you. They rejected God's Word here. They rejected His authority, which means they rejected His love. Seatbelt's the most loving thing a car ever gives to you. and one of the most restraining things, right? My uncle raised bird dogs, and he would go uh, show these bird dogs in field trials in North and South Dakota. The way a field trial works is you, they would breed these dogs, bird dogs as you've seen and know, and then you would train them to go find the pheasants in the field, for people like my middle daughter who I love and agree with, they did not shoot these pheasants. The dog just scared them up and then they were free to go live their little happy, furry lives until the foxes killed them, right? But we didn't kill them, we weren't shooting them, but we were doing field trials. So this is a humane way to do it and the way it works is, they would put the birds all in the field and the the dog would work, but there were there were boundaries on the field just because you can't go, the, the field trial won't work if you go out. So. You would train your dog, if it goes off the edge, you just give it a command, it would stop and get off that scent and come back and find another scent. Because the birds would run everywhere. And so they would run, and then when they realized they couldn't run away, just I don't know why, then they'd fly, right? So they're like, they'd like try to sneak, it's, it seems like running from Godzilla, but who knows? I don't know. My, my uncle had this one particular dog that he loved, and it went to the edge of the field, and he called it back. I don't know what the command is. hi haya, hi right? And the dog turned and looked at him. Kept going. <laughs> this isn't the illustration, but that's just you with everything your parents said, right? Like, yeah, whoo, okay? <laughs> but see, the dog put his nose down because the bird's now running out that way, and he ran directly into a porcupine. And my uncle had the picture on his office of the dog limping back, a hundred things in it with the porcupine, right? Look, that's us. (laughs) That's us with God's Word. He's telling us to do all these things beautiful. Love your neighbor, study English. Give yourself to your passions. But then He's also restraining us and right when He calls us back, we're like, good luck with that. Because by nature, by nature, we don't want to submit to this Word, both as Christians and non-Christians. By nature, we don't want it. We need this Bible, for instance, because Jesus calls us sheep. It's one of the hardest things He says about us in the New Testament. Sheep, as you know, or don't know, are dumb. So Jesus is saying this to John Stone. You're a sheep. There's nothing sweet or kind about that. He's saying you're dumb. And you need me and my authority and my love to rule over you. See, we hate the thing we long for, don't we? We long for there to be rules and order and freedom. But we want the freedom without the rules and order. And we were, ma- we were made to not govern ourselves, but we long to govern ourselves. And it's God's Word that really knows what reality is, and yet we don't want it. Look, the number one struggle for us is that we are bent against the Bible by nature. But it gets a little worse in this passage, actually. Not only are we by nature rejecting God's word authority and by his love, it means we're confused about who we are. We are ashamed. We're scared. And we're hiding. And we're accusing others of being the problem. Notice in this passage what the rejection of the word means. In verse 7, the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This sin that Adam and Eve enter in together, they both had different roles, right, in that sin, but it's the same sin. Their eyes are opened at the same instance. It's their fault this happened. Not her fault and not his, not his fault, and not hers. It's their fault. It's their fault. And at that minute, their eyes were open and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together. You realize what they began to feel at that point was shame. Look, this is easy. Your number one struggle in life, number one, is you don't know what to do with your shame. You're doing a lot of stuff with it. Some of you are doing Pilates with it. Some of you are doing physics with it. Some of you are doing athletics with it. Some of you are doing gaming with it. Some of you are doing Instagram with it. Some of you are doing anger with it. Oh, you're doing stuff with it. Some of you are under-eating with it and overeating with it. Some of us are F3-ing it. But what we're doing is trying to figure out what to do with this inherent shame. So they sewed fig leaves together. This is another sermon. A fig leaf is good for about 30 minutes after you pull it off a fig tree. That means you've covered up the important stuff for 30 minutes. Think about, if we were still stuck with the fig leaf principle, that means you could only do something in public for 30 minutes at a time. That's a nightmare solution to your problem. But they're not only ashamed, they begin to hide. So they get figs, and then they get behind pine trees. Pine trees, because I'm from South Carolina. Pine tree. If you're from somewhere else, it's an oak or whatever, right? And then when, when the Lord, their friend comes who loves them, they start saying it's the other person's fault. This looks like any roommate you've lived with in college. You want to lose your best friend, room with them in college. How many of you had to negotiate the best friend roommate breakup this year? I'm serious. It's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. Best friend. We're best friends. The reason you're best friends is you're opposites. You hate each other, don't live together, stay best friends. This is how it works. The sloppy one is shaming the clean one who's just cleaning like with righteousness if she just understood this. And the the clothes borrower is not cleaning the non-clothes borrower. And that was the dress grandmother gave me. Don't have grandmother's dress in the room with her then. Like it's a nightmare. Don't room with your best friend. That's a freebie. We're full of shame. We're hiding and we're blaming Look, the reason you didn't get the job, the reason you didn't pass the test, now this isn't isn't every, the reason it didn't work out the way you wanted it to is somebody else's fault, right? I was better than Wim Bates in the seventh grade when I got cut from the JV basketball team and he made it But his sister was dating his son. That's why he made the team, right? It's not my fault. I wasn't just terrible at JV basketball. No left hand can't jump and slow. Might have something to do with my JV basketball problems, right? But no, it's somebody else's fault. See, we we are confused about who we are. We're accusing others of the problem we're hiding. See, all of these things are keeping us from the Bible. from this place where life is, from, from this place where love is. All, all of this nature in us is keeping us from going there. A few years ago, I was driving home from Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, it, was, it was, I think, January, early in January, and as I pulled into my neighborhood, it was really late, I was really tired. I actually had not a lot, just a couple of hallucinations from fatigue, fatigue. See, College just like, he was doing LSD. Your minds are in the gutter. I was fatigued. <laughs> he was doing some good stuff. One of you said, I heard it. Okay. Uh, I was just fatigued. It was way late. And as I pull in, I'm going up. I'm going up Cheshire. I live on. And it's, I'm looking at the Christmas lights. And I think, man, that Christmas tree is awesome. It looks like it's on fire. Because it is. <laughs> and I'm struggling because I'm thinking, oh, it's probably just, you know, fatigue. And like that's when the whole thing focuses, right? And there's a big 12-foot hole in this. This guy's house is on fire. It's not his Christmas tree. His house is on fire. And so I get out of my minivan, call the police. I actually heard the bell ring. I heard the police officer step on her V8 and light up the light. She later would hold me at the scene thinking that I had started the fire. And, you know, because people who start it like wait around to see it, but then I had a gas receipt from Chattanooga and then she sent me home. So I was not, I was only a suspect for about four or five minutes in her mind. But as as I'm calling I realize it's somebody trapped in the house. And at this point the door opened, the garage door started opening, and black smoke came out. And that black smoke, it it lit just like, almost like Hollywood. Fire ran across that ceiling and they backed their cars out, the man and his wife. She got out and came around. I'm standing far from the house, and then the guy runs back in the garage on fire, gets a hose, attaches it, turns it on, hands the water to me, tells me to start spraying it. And this is where the insanity starts, and I did. I'm, I'm, too, I'm too smart for this. And he, this is the illustration, he starts running up down the sidewalk blowing. Okay, so, sorry. <laughs> so we know, like, basic, he's in, he's in total shock. He, he doesn't remember doing this. His wife remembers him doing it. And he's just saying over and over, my house was on fire in my house. <sighs> okay. The problems that you're experiencing around the issues of shame in your life, You can't solve them. You can't solve them. They're too big for you. You're like, John, that's crazy. Lose the weight. You'll discover more shame after you've lost the weight. Create a good marriage like your parents didn't have. You'll discover shame in your good marriage. Be the first to graduate from college in your family and discover a new shame that they didn't know because they didn't graduate from college. They were blissfully ignorant of that shame. This problem is a problem you can't solve. And the Scriptures are screaming this at you. This is why the protagonist in the beautiful Hollywood sets in the first and end of the Bible are so powerful and big. It's saying you have a problem with Scripture and with reality that you can't solve. This is the point of the Bible. The whole thing is written so that you'll work through it and one day go, Oh no! I can't fix this problem. So I just want to stop some of you you who are Christians are reading it going, I will find the answer in here. I did in sociology, I did in student government, I did in robotics, I will find it here. Keep reading. What you will find is that this problem is bigger than you. See, we're in a war <laughs> with ourselves, and the Bible is just shining a light on it, waiting for us to see it. The Bible is true. Christians have always believed it. The Bible is telling you It's true. Jesus believes it's true, and it's for the point of showing you that you have an unsolvable problem. And it looks like shame and blame shifting and anger. SJ and I were talking about this just before the singing started. There's only one kind of person in the world angry. There's those of us who admitted we're angry, vodka and golf. And then there's those of you who have admitted you're angry, nice, and working hard. Nothing wrong with working hard. I'm just saying you're hiding it. There's only one kind of person in the world, and that's angry. And when you get to that anger, this is like the 51-year-old man you didn't like preaching to you at summer conference. You can get to it now or later. You can start the midlife crisis early and get the counseling bills out of the way cheaper and with a lot less baggage. Or you can just wait and like pile up those bills. But you're going to discover this truth that the Bible is screaming at you. You can't solve this problem of shame and anger and brokenness. It's unsolvable. And that's the point of the Bible. (laughs) That's why the Bible is here. That's why when you read things like the Sermon on the Mount, you go... It seems really hard. And a good campus minister will go, no, it's harder than that. As Paul would say, he didn't know he had a problem until it just said, don't ever want anything. If you want to walk with God, don't want anything else. I would like to breathe into the next second. Uh, Whoops, there it was. I coveted that breath. On some real level. Like... The point is, you can't fix it. So where do we go from here? Is this the end of the sermon, John? No. The next four points, three of which will be tomorrow night, relax. After the F3C biscuit in the morning, the next four points, one tonight, three tomorrow, will say, where do we go from here? I think what I want to begin with tonight before I work towards all of my conclusions tomorrow is this. As we look at the Bible, we've got to begin to see it in a different light than we often see it. Especially for those of us in the West, we tend to see the Bible as a solvable problem. And I want to make it unsolvable for you so you'll begin to see a different answer. Here's how this passage ends. It ends with two people with their clothes falling off of them who are married, really mad at each other, probably in the kitchen screaming at each other, right? Think of your parents or you and your brothers and sisters or just your roommate saying that if the other person were just dead, none of this would happen, right? And you don't see Jesus walk up to them in this passage and say, Stop. I've got some steps for you. He just says, shut up. Now, my mother, who graduated from Furman, would be appalled by the use of shut up. So to make Jesus more palatable to mom, he would just say, why don't y'all quiet down a bit? They don't do anything. What he does is he leaves them there in their problem, and he walks over and finds an animal, and he kills the animal. And He makes the first permanent clothes for them ever. The Lord, Verse 21, The Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and He clothed them. And then He said, He's become like one of us, though in good and evil. We cannot allow Him to reach out His hand and take from the tree and live forever. He's trying to stop them from getting stuck in this unfixable problem. So He puts clothes on them and He tosses them out of the garden. Now, this teaches us the first and biggest point. The point of the Bible is that Jesus is the answer, not the rules. The point of the Bible is that Jesus is the Redeemer. And that the only thing we can bring to this endeavor is the admission that we need Him. Faith is an empty-handed thing. We believe this Bible to be true because it drives us to the end of ourselves so that ultimately we're standing there saying, Jesus, I don't have an answer for you. If you cannot save me, Jesus, this is the point. If you cannot kill the animal and substitute it for me, I got nothing. I don't have an answer for you. I know what I did is not enough. See, the Bible is intended to stop us. I got to preach in Sunday school a few weeks ago on Mary and Martha in the New Testament. One sits at Jesus' feet, and one's running around like a chicken with her head cut off or a Vanderbilt student. You choose whichever one you want, right? And the one Jesus says is doing the right thing is the one who's actually doing nothing. It's trying to stop us. The Bible is screaming at you. You don't have the answers to what's going on in here. Only Jesus does. I can't sleep at all. I have found a sleep remedy, Dr. Parsley's sleep remedy, which is changing my life. I took Ambien forever, but then I did weird things and had to quit taking Ambien, right? I didn't do any weird things that would cause arrests, felonies. It was just sort of weird, right? My youngest daughter has been gifted to sleep by like Jesus Himself. Like she used to we used to read the Bible to her back when we were good Christians, as parents. Before we bought her a car and a cell phone with no filter on it and just sent her into the world, uh, and you would kiss her, and before she put her on the pillow, she'd be in REM sleep, and it would make me so mad. She just, or she gets in the van with us and just falls asleep, sleeps four hours. We stop, she goes and uses the bathroom, goes out, and falls asleep. It just, this is just me sharing bitterness. There's nothing. There's no point here. I'm just sort of publicly sharing bitterness about my youngest daughter. But my sleep problems lead, and y'all have all been here, either getting ready for an exam, not sleeping, or just ordering pizza late. Before even the channels, you you end up watching television at 1.30, and you just are tempted to buy all kind of stuff you don't need. How to polish your silver, how to get in shape, pills. Uh, But the juicer has got to take the cake, right? So there's a guy juicing on there. And here's, like I've got this one memorized. They split the screen. And on this side, he's doing the juicing stuff. I mean, he's some over-energetic, caffeine-injected nightmare, right? That's what he is. (laughs) He, if you've ever been around the Greeks, you know, he's a pledge chairman. This guy's a pledge trainer. Ah! 24-7. And he's got kale and blueberries and cucumbers and pears and guacamole and everything and all this stuff. And he's just juicing the heck out of it. And on the left, this is what's stunning. On the left are the things that juicing cures. I have, I, I have this screen, one of them is cancer. See, I mean, It's funny, but this is sad. I've had several friends die from cancer. I think they just missed a juicing commercial, right? Like, this is insane. ADHD? I got ADHD, can you tell? Uh, Juicing with sugar only makes it worse, as far as I can tell. I forget to put the things in it, because I got ADHD. It doesn't really correct me. I leave it on the counter and go do something. Squirrels, squirrels, right? It, it didn't seem to solve it. Uh, low self-esteem. Low self, like I, I'm in. Like tell me, it. But here's what I like about him: he's all in. He just believes juicing. It's just everything. Now, there's a place for juicing none of which he describes appropriately at all. <laughs> you should see your local medical professional, physiologist, or nutritionist, and they'll help you to find a juicing lifestyle suitable to a normal person, right? <laughs> but, he, but now when you go home and you can't sleep, you're going to find the juicing commercial and you're going to learn something about the Bible. The Bible is like the juicing guy. The answer is Jesus. And it never gets off that. Work through the law, and you'll end up with Christ. Work through the exodus, and you'll be following Christ. Work when they're dispersed, and you'll find Jesus. Go in the minor prophets and walk around with them, and you'll see the Messiah. Come to the New Testament. He'll be standing there. Go to Acts, and they're talking about Him everywhere. And then there's Revelation with Him standing there waiting on us. The point of the Bible is Jesus. And that's why we're studying it this week. Let me pray for us. We thank You, Jesus, that You are the point of the story. From beginning to end, we are told that You are the only Redeemer Of mankind and the only name by which we can be saved. We pray that in all of our own devices, we would stop thinking that we can solve the issues in us and would lift up our eyes to you. Pray that the scriptures themselves would come alive to us as we begin to find you there. Help us, Jesus, to see you more clearly, even as we've sung about you and heard about you this week. We pray this in your name.